Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Toby Martinez, the CEO of the Texas Mineral Company, who's a ground game driven aggregator focused on the Permian, Scoop Stack, and DJ Basin. During the episode, Toby talks about the trends over the last three years on the ground and how his team has continued to adapt to get deals done through COVID, negative oil, and now oil over $100 a barrel. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Toby had to say. Toby, good morning and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Hi, good morning, Tim. Thank you for having me. You bet. So always like to start these with a little personal background. I think your background is entrepreneurial in nature and you've taken a unconventional path to the mineral space and starting Texas Mineral Company. So we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, but to paint some context, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And you know, what was your background in oil and gas? Was the family in it, neighbors, et cetera? And what led you to, to get into oil and gas and minerals? I'll, I'll let you take it away. So uh, I was born in a, and raised in a small town just north of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and a small town called Chimayo. Not a whole lot going on out there in terms of oil and gas. Graduated from there and uh, went down to New Mexico State in Las Cruces for five years, four years, got my undergraduate in business computer systems, did an accelerated program and got my MBA. Started off really in computers right after, well, while I was in high school, I, I worked for Los Alamos National Laboratory as a high school co-op, a graduate and a postgraduate student. So after I graduated from New Mexico State, Moved back to Española and uh, worked at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Decided, you I mean, that wasn't the path for me. Started a computer repair franchise, computer troubleshooters in Albuquerque. So moved to Albuquerque and had that for about eight years. So we were fixing. Um, and this is, bit- for context, this is like late 90s, early 2000s. This is like surge of the internet, right? And so I'm yeah. sure when you're in school, it's like, man, computers, this is the way to go, right? Is that kind of the... The idea of the the 18-year-old mind that mindset you're in? Yeah, absolutely. So I graduated from high school in 1998 and graduated from New Mexico State with my undergraduate in 2002 and my master's in 2003. So growing up in high school, we kind of just got the dial-up internet at that time, like when I was a freshman. So just realizing that, you mean, computers is the future, thinking that that might be a good uh, direction for me to go with my career. I wasn't always super techie more than anything. I mean, I did really well in school. I was the top of my class. That was really important to me. But when you're younger, you you never really know exactly where, I mean, what your future holds or where you where you want to go. So computers sounded like a great idea. When I got out of college, I mean, I was working at Los Alamos Laboratory. We were doing, uh, I was doing computer support out there. And then I started working for the Department of Homeland Defense, and uh, my mentor kind of had transitioned over to that group. That was right around right after 9/11, when when that was kind of big. So, but it just really wasn't for me. And then we opened up. I opened up computer troubleshooters. We fixed both business and personal computers, and uh, that went really well. I had a, a really good team, probably about five to six employees, and just 
trying to kind of find my way. I was working with a, a gentleman that was a colleague of mine who had a business right next to mine, and they they were doing premium finance life insurance policies. They were a high net worth family. So I kind of got into insurance there for a bit and started working for high net worth clients. I worked for a gentleman out of uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, really wealthy, flying on his helicopter. We fly all around the state. You mean I uh, worked to put together a good network of high net worth clients here in New Mexico. Unfortunately, during that time, he got into a helicopter accident. Him and his son and and another client passed away. And so that kind of put a through a wrench of things. And that was right around 2008 as well, when the complete global economy crashed and the insurance provider we're working with was AIG. And so they were kind of in the middle of that mix. So I uh, went back to computers uh, a little bit and then uh, also got into some captive insurance planning, which is I mean, tax planning for successful businesses. Um, and I used my network of high net worth clients to, I mean, to work that business. Never really even considered oil and gas. I mean, being from northern New Mexico, I know southern New Mexico is huge on on oil. I mean, Eddie and Lee County, I mean, obviously some of the best rock in the world or the best rock in the world. There's a ton of oil and gas businesses up north, not so much. I know if you go up to the uh, four corners of New Mexico, you mean, you got a lot of gas there, but not where I was from. So it wasn't really anything that had crossed my mind. I was connected with a woman by the name of Kyle Thompson, who uh, was in oil and gas at the time. They were working for an operator, signed some working interest in the Bakken, got to know her pretty well and dug into some of these projects and realized, okay, I've got high net worth clients. This might be a good fit. And that's really where my uh, career in oil and gas began. It was really just by chance. At the end of the year, the tax planning, the cap for captive insurance is really about tax planning. And a lot of your uh, policies get done probably the last two quarters of the year. And so to start off January, it was kind of, I had some time on my hands and kind of dug so into this these is, projects. This is what time frame because when you start bringing your high net worth circle into Bakken deals and you start getting educated on the oil and gas space, this is what time frame? About 2012. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So, so that's a kind of a, an interesting way, you know, especially when we talked initially, I was like, oh, high net worth circle. Now he's in the mineral space. That makes a whole lot of sense. So it's a really kind of usually would be in oil and gas and then try to build that high net worth circle around mm-hmm. the oil and gas expertise. So it's interesting how you kind of flip that on its head. So KNT Energy Partners is, is kind of the, the first energy venture and entity that you were a partner. And so explain a little bit how that unfolded and the timeline and then how you started getting into leasehold and minerals and and then why you started the, the Texas Mineral Company. Sure. We were working for an operator, Downhole Energy, out of uh, Pennsylvania, and we would raise capital. Uh, we do the marketing and raise the capital for small drilling projects, 10 to 12 well projects. They're super shallow. You mean about 1,300 feet. They come in about 30 barrels a day, drop down to five, and then one to two. At that time, it was $100 oil. So, I mean, these were profitable. But it just, it, I mean, it wasn't super interesting to me in that it was so far away from where I was located. You know, I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We've got the Permian right in our back door. Horizontal drilling was, I mean, the thing. And there's much better, bigger, more attractive projects to be a part of. So, I mean, I stepped away from working with that operator to kind of pursue stuff 
closer to home in Texas, West Texas. And I started doing some leasehold projects in the Eagleford. That worked out really well. And then just started doing some other prospecting. I was working with a geologist out of uh, Durango. and We put together a, a really large leasehold in Gaines County. Worked those that project for a period of time. We took some deals out of bankruptcy. And so, I mean, deals in oil and gas. And when you're doing those types of projects, I mean, you eat what you kill. So, I mean, you sold your project, you had a really good payday and things were going really well. And then I started to kind of dabble in, in minerals and started doing several mineral deals and realized that it was more transactional and that you don't have to wait six months or eight months or even a year to get your project sold. And I think that was about 2018 going into 2019 decided to just really jump into minerals and, and focus primarily on minerals and not necessarily leaseholds or putting together other prospects. And that's when I started the Texas Mineral Company. So Excellent. since from 2019, man, things were things were rock and rolling then. I mean, it was a really good time. I mean, the deal flow was great. I put together a really great uh, team. And yeah, it's kind of been just off to the races from then. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are gonna be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. That's great. So kind of looking at the mineral space from a macro perspective, you have first Pubco's go to market in 2014, Prairie Sky and Viper, a bunch of private equity and institutional capital kind of floods in over the next call it three to four years. And a lot of the bigger private equity teams are now established. And so space gets very competitive. In the middle of all that, you have kind of prices cratering a little bit and then and then going and stabilizing around what 50, 60 bucks. 
And so 2019, where you're at, are you kind of familiar with the competitive landscape of minerals and see as an opportunity or just in comparison to what you're doing, you felt minerals was a better opportunity and that's how you dipped your toes in. And then you've kind of adapted to where the opportunity, you know, value creation is for you now that you're in the mineral space. Yeah. I kind of just jumped in. Uh, I mean, even just throughout my career, not having any sort of background in oil and gas, I, mean, I really just had to learn from my own mistakes. I mean, there was people within the industry that I worked alongside with that you know, would teach me along the way, but just having no background whatsoever or anybody to guide me, it was really just taking a leap of faith, not being afraid and, I mean, going after it. And <laughs> it worked out really well. But all this came from, I mean, a ton of hard work and day working day in and day out. I mean, I, I mean, I work from the time that I wake up to the time that I go to bed. I really do have two shifts. I mean, a daytime shift where I'm typically on the phone with buyers and sellers, and then a nighttime shift from about 10 to 2 in the morning that I just dig into deals and really filter out the leads that we have uh, and, and go through each deal one by one by one and take a look at all the different mineral opportunities that are in front of us. So when I dug into oil and gas, not oil and gas and the minerals, it was, I was really fresh. And sometimes when you don't know what you don't know, sometimes, you, sometimes it'll work it out. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that happened to be, I mean, how it worked out for us. And again, I put together a really good team of several other individuals that had been within the industry. And so I was able to really build a reputation off of being honest. My word I mean, means everything putting in hard work and being able to deliver really high quality mineral packages and just being an aggregator for some of these larger funds. So we never really had the capital to go in and compete in this space with some of these. I mean, the amount of money that's in, in this space now is pretty insane. It's even crazy to uh, think about the deals that we do on a regular basis and the size of the deals that we do, but we've built some really, really good relationships throughout the industry the deals that we bring forward are deals that are organic that we've that we've vetted. They're not shop deals, and so I think the the partners that we work with really appreciate that. And at the end of the day, everybody's just looking for good quality deals. And I mean, nobody likes deals that have been shopped that everybody has seen. So I mean, our ability to organically generate these deals and put them in front of these buyers that have the capital and they're looking for good quality deals, especially in uh, Midland and Delaware Basin, which is our, our bread and butter. And it's worked out really well for us. 2019, we hit the ground running and we just had just a phenomenal year. And then uh, the following year was also really good. But then 20, 2020, I think was a difficult year for everybody. We really dug deep and found different types of deals that were a good fit at the time. And uh, because not everybody was selling, there was such a huge disconnect between buyers and sellers. These uh, sellers were used to getting these super high offers and then the price tanked. And I mean, you're giving them an offer of half that price. And so, I mean, they're not even entertaining it, but we were still able to find deals and find buyers and find kind of a, a niche that, that worked at the time. Now the price of oil is up and things have since changed and we're seeing, we're kind of back to 2019 numbers and yeah, we're having a really good year. So explain to me a little bit of how your business model works, just for those out there listening. You're going out, are you sourcing opportunities and saying, I think this is quality, we're going to go after it. You try to tie it up and you almost play 
freelance and and try to take it to a handful of groups that you work with or is it strategic you have an ami with a group or you know their criteria and you're specifically buying areas for them and then you just have a handful of partners ongoing at any point and by partners you're referring to large groups and buyers pubcos you know private equity back shops right yeah kind of a combination of both so we're an aggregator so we go out and we source these deals i've Establish the relationships with these end buyers that I know who's buying in what areas. I know their pricing. I know the criteria and how each deal, what boxes it checks and who to take it to. We don't like shopping it. So we'll take it to maybe a handful or even less groups that know that I know will buy a specific deal at a, a specific price. We go after stuff that we know that would be attractive, but a lot of times you run into other other minerals that you're talking to a seller and they say, okay, well, I'm not selling that interest, but I've got this, this, and this. Would you like to make me an offer on it? And so being able to have groups, whether they're the larger groups, the private buyers, and being able to take whatever deal it is and, and transact on it or knowing who to take it to that will transact on it. It's kind of our specialty. So over time, we've been able to do that and really build our reputation with these groups. So I feel that when we take somebody a deal, we're essentially handling it to them on a silver platter and that we've got everything lined up, all the information they need. And when it comes time to closing, the process is extremely smooth. And that's why I think groups continue to come back to us or sellers continue to either refer us to people within their family and friends or come back to us with other minerals that they're looking to sell. And so again, we've really, really built a a solid reputation on both the buy and sell side, but we're direct to both buyers and sellers. Now we do have people within the industry, whether it's other brokers or landmen or just other groups that have deals that aren't a fit for them, but they know they could bring them to us and we know exactly where to take them and, and, and make sure that the deal gets done and, 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 everybody, and keeping everybody happy, just making sure that the buyers are getting the deals that they're looking for, the sellers are getting the prices that they're looking for, and that everything goes, the entire process is smooth along the way. So let me put you in the hot seat for a bit. So space kind of blows up six, seven years ago, all this money comes in. Tons of brokerage shops come in. There's so much low-hanging fruit, and folks want to build portfolios as quickly as possible. So it's a you know kind of like the minerals version of the land grab in the beginning of the unconventional boom, right? Yeah. Now over time, brokers that aren't doing it the right way kind of put a bad name on the brokerage space, I think. And I yeah. brokers are essential to the ecosystem because there's the small fragmented stuff, the hairy deals the grinding. And and so there's a place for groups to do that so that the larger capital doesn't expend the, the opportunity costs of doing it themselves. And then they'll pay the right price for groups like you to make money. And then they're getting the scale they want. And everyone is, is benefiting this, right? What's happened is the space has gotten more competitive and more sophisticated is that the, the less professional or less successful brokers have been squeezed out. Now, you came in, I would argue, at a time where this has already started to happen, and you made it through COVID, and you guys are still going, and you're doing well. So what are the things that you think denote a good brokerage shop? And and what are some of the things that you pride yourself on maybe staying away from that other peers that kind of get a bad name, shopping deals, running stuff up, bidding prices that may ruin the market, and they don't have the money? 
These are all things I kind of hear about, right? And I think, yeah, over to you, kind of to defend your 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 space in the yeah. ecosystem and to just talk about things you feel you guys are doing well in comparison to others. I think you're spot on about that. Brokers within the industry, I mean, what everybody hates is shop deals. And so, I mean, I learned that early on that that's not the way that we're going to be successful, that if we're going to be successful in this space, we have to, like I said, organically generate our own deals. We have to be direct with the with the end seller. And then we have to be direct with the buyer too. So being in the middle of those two and being able to control the deal, good communication on, on all sides. I, I know that buyers and sellers, if they uh, need information or uh, they need something to move the deal forward. They're not having to go through three, four, five people, or even just even two is difficult. So, you I mean, we're direct. We, we've been able to very effectively communicate to the both the buyer and the seller exactly what the deal is. We were able to provide all the information that's needed to get the deal across the finish line. And then the biggest part of thing that I feel is that, you I mean, our word means something when we say something, it gets done. And so uh, being able to build our reputation off just doing good business and good communication, and again, being direct to the buyer and the seller, I think has really uh, led to our success, avoiding not being able to provide all the information uh, on a deal. And at the end of the day, just getting deals across the finish line. I think also that we've been very successful at getting difficult deals done because the low hanging fruit at anybody could anybody could close those deals but really digging into the more complex deals and again being able to get those across the finish line is kind of separates you from any other broker that's out there that could you mean just get a something that's handed to them and just kind of a basic mineral deal done so now I think the space isn't as competitive, although there there are still a lot of brokers. I think a lot of people went to a nine to five job and you don't have as many people out there, but it's still super, uh, super competitive. So, you mean, we, we try to differentiate ourselves again through good communication and just really being honest and our word really meaning something and being able to work with people that we've worked with over the years that that know that we could get a deal done and that we're going to treat them right. Yeah, I think the the one thing that I saw in 2020 was it got very expensive to have a large ground game in-house because mm-hmm. when the deal flow dries up, you're still staffing these folks, right? And so I think what's what's an interesting debate, if you're a larger fund, is how do we build our team and how do we engineer our acquisition strategy? Is it going to be very lean and we outsource a lot of partnerships and we build a network of brokers and we build a network of strategic alliances with teams and basins who have a good track record and you properly incentivize them with carries or or other types of you know in-kind contribution or do you do that in-house so you have control of it and there's there's a give and a take and I think more have gravitated towards the broker networks and the strategic alliances post COVID because if you're sitting there and deal flow dries up and you know you're a value buyer, well, you're not sitting there with a, a full team, not not being able to do anything. And so that's where a lot of the bigger players are starting to gravitate. Now, flipping that back to a group like you, where you're doing your business by having that ground game team and being out there pounding the phones. The other kind of trend that I've seen is instead of being completely freelance and just trying to get in the middle of any deal you can to make a quick buck, it's hey, we're credible, we're we're quality. And it's alliances with real money, 
and you end mm-hmm. up being the the Martin Midland County buyer for so and so private equity firm and the Eagleford buyer, right? And it's very strategic, and you have your three or four main clients that's steady enough for you to be able to run your business without being pinched every week, right? To try to flip something to survive. Sure. So comments on that, because that's what I've seen kind of from conversations and be interested to look under the hood and see kind of how you feel about that. Well, we, we run pretty lean to begin with. So I think in 2020, it was more about figuring out, you mean, who was going to sell. So the larger deals were difficult to get done again, because uh, most of these people, if they own a large amount of minerals, they've got money, they were getting offers, double, triple what they were getting during 2020. Nobody's going to sell when the market's low. So we were really trying to figure out, okay, in the given the market today, who are the sellers? So we were having to piece together um, smaller deals, whether it was small fragmented interest in multiple tracks, and then adding additional family members to kind of build it up into something somewhat decent. Those were the people that needed money at the time. And so, I mean, selling at a lower price than was previously offered made sense. And so we were able to get deals done that way. They weren't huge deals, but we got deals done and we survived and we made it through and really proud of myself and our team for being able to do that. We found out that those were the more difficult deals to do because as things get more fragmented, title gets more complicated, you're dealing with more tracks, smaller amount of acreage, but we made it through then. And now it's just a completely different market. Now the deal sizes are much bigger you could buy a single track and get several hundred acres as opposed to having to put together 10 tracks with five different family members to get 50 net royalty acres. So we're in a, in a really good time again, kind of very similar to 2019. In preparing for this show, um, I really hadn't always, I mean, I look at the numbers, but in terms of putting together how many deals we've done over the years, and now I'm trying to get better at sharing that information and showing exactly the work that we do and who we are and and putting that out there. And so I get to take a look at the numbers and um, it's interesting to see, I mean, over the years, I mean, what we did in 2019, what we did in 2020, what we did in 2021 and I mean, where we're at right now. So each year has been a little bit different, but it's just trying to figure out the landscape and of the market at that given time and figuring out, I mean, what to go after. And I think that's kind of been a big uh, deal for us and how we've been able to find these deals is, is understanding the market and who's selling and what exactly buyers are looking for at, at any given time. So right now, you were getting much larger deals. I think you're finding that people within the industry, uh, private mineral buyers, they know that they bought at a certain price and they're selling at the top of the market. And so they're divesting in part of their portfolio. So we've been able to do those types of deals. Also, larger mineral owners that have been around for a while that understand that, I mean, Now's a great time to sell. We're, we're seeing that as well. So uh, it's just timing of the market and figuring out kind of where the landscape is at that given time is really important. And then for us, a big part of what we do is utilizing the data to go out and, and find these specific sellers. So, you know, I was talking to someone who's got a ground game in the Anadarko the other day. And he was saying, he's like, you know, Tim, what's interesting, and you could look at it like, Going back to my econ days at school, the price elasticity of minerals is is much stickier than commodity prices. So put another way, he was like, oil is three times what it was last year or a year and a half ago, but minerals prices aren't selling for 3x. And there's, there's a bit of a, a difference there. 
and you got to educate sellers on that process. But, you know, I, I always kind of, in this price environment, you always think like, oh, you know, is this the top of the mountain? Is this a good time to buy? And there's a variety of ways to, you know, still find value. And, you know, if it's hedging and different tax strategies and trades and, and, and just finding the right opportunity, like you said, Harrier deals, patching other family members. But what is your like response to that? Like oil going up 3X versus kind of value, I guess what stuff transacts that, but also expectations. What what do you see dealing, you know, majority of your deal flow direct? So for PDP, their monthly revenue has gone up considerably. And so getting a multiple uh, current cash flow is sometimes difficult because they realize I'm making X amount of money per month and you're offering three years on that. But they have to understand that, I mean, the price of oil may not be at 100, 110, 120 for the next three years. So they're getting declines. paid. Right. That's they're, the biggest. Yeah. Absolutely. There's declines. So sometimes that's difficult when dealing with sellers because their monthly revenue is so good right now. Sometimes you have experienced people that understand, okay, well, I'm getting paid at $120 oil. They realize that wells do decline over time. Now's a good time to get out. Typically, those are people within the industry. You mean you're selling at top of the market and they're giving you a multiple of current uh, commodity prices versus a year ago or a couple of years ago that we were at negative or even at $30, $40, or $50 oil. But also on like put acreage, you can't give them the current value of of the market because those wells aren't producing right now. So, you mean, you have to go off of strip commodity pricing, but really at the end of the day, that's up to the, uh, to the end buyer to determine exactly how they're going to price things out. But be, being able to come in and being competitive on pricing versus their other offers is a big deal. So it really is competitive in terms of price. And then also them just trusting you and the ability to know that you're going to get the deal done or somebody else referred you and you're um, a trusted source to to sell their minerals to. So that's been big, but price is always a big deal. And sometimes people are just shooting for the moon and you're just never going to get there. And uh, the economics behind the reserves that are under the ground, depending on how many benches are there, they're only going to get priced out a certain way. And so some people will never get their asking price and they'll never sell their minerals. That's literally what it comes down to. Sometimes people think, okay, because you're offering a month, several months ago, you're offering 10,000 net royalty acre. And then now that's gone up to 12. And now somebody's offering me 15. Why is that not going to go to 20? I'll just wait till it goes to 20 when in reality, you'll never get there. And so we run into that a lot, but just being able to communicate to people, you mean how pricing is, how you come up with pricing, what's the overall value. And I mean, if they accept that, they accept that. If not, then sometimes you just have to move on and they're going to hold on to their minerals forever. But again, working with people within the industry that understand pricing and that understand where we're at in, in, in today's pricing, it's it's a lot easier than dealing with people that really just don't have no experience and they inherited them and they're going to hold on to them no matter what, or they just don't understand that. I mean, right now is a an exceptional time versus when the price of oil will eventually go down to 60, 70 or 80. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. 
Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcast, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputtered, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed, shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. So another question, you, you kind of mentioned, you know, uh, NRA multiples just as a, a reference point. Where are we at in the Permian on scale and relative valuation? And so what I'm getting at here is if you're down market and you're doing the nitty gritty to patch together three NRAs and six NRAs versus a hundred NRA deal, is it trading at the same multiple or is there a significant discount because it's so small? And then there's a premium paid for larger stuff because it's aggregated and of scale and for a larger buyer velocity of capital, right? They can put more money to work. So they're willing to pay a bit of a premium. I'll reference a couple of conversations. One, it was a ground game buyer in a different basin and they really kind of broke it out there. They looked at five NRAs and lower, 10 NRAs and up, and then 50 NRAs and up. And they said there was very different competitiveness in those tranches. And as a result, mm-hmm. what you could pay, right? And that was a really interesting thing to look at. And then another guy I talked to who was going through a sale process of some of their, their portfolios was like, man, Tim, I, I saw what a lot of the end buyers are willing to pay. And we had a decent sized portfolio. And now I'm seeing what's being paid on the ground. And it's not that different. And that's worries me a little bit on building the portfolio again. Like where's the value creation of being the ground guy and building some up of scale if the M buyers are paying, I'll make up a number 35,000 an NRA in a good area. And, you know, on the ground, it's going for 33. It's like, you're going to take all this capital risk for 2K NRA spread. These are, I'm, I'm fabricating the numbers a little bit. I'm just paying the hypothetical sure. out here. But do, do you see across the board, the same pricing, regardless of scale? And it's just really, can you get the deal done? Is a good deal done? The economics standalone or like when you were in COVID and you were stitching together these really fragmented deals, is there some value creation there just because it takes so much work? 
for us, every single deal is different. I mean, sometimes you, you get a home run that, I mean, it's just works out perfect. Title's really clean. It's a large amount in just a couple of, of sections. And so, you mean, title can be done and you get it at a, at a really reasonable price and you find an end buyer that's willing to pay a premium on that. So you, you knock it out of the park. And then there's other deals that, I mean, they're larger and your margins are smaller. And so it's a deal by deal basis. We try to do well on every deal, but even some, some deals are just base hits and we're okay with that. I mean, we put around, put in the same amount of work into every deal. I mean, it's hard to save that because on bigger deals, I mean, you obviously want to put, you mean more effort because you're going to hopefully make more money, but then sometimes you end up putting more work into a smaller deal because it's more difficult. And that doesn't mean that you don't put as much effort to make it as smooth as possible. And your margins are small. And I mean, you take that deal and you move, move on to something else. But uh, every single deal is different. I mean, every deal, we love to knock it out of the park. But I'm kind of a, the mentality and mindset is whatever it takes to get the deal done. I mean, we're not going to stand in the way of a deal. If it's transactable and we have a group that's interested in it and the seller just really doesn't want to budge on uh, on price and the margins are smaller. I mean, we're, we're completely okay with that. I mean, we're really in it to build long-term relationships with both buyers and sellers and continue to work with them over time. And that's when we'll get our payoff. And sometimes we run into deals that are a lot easier to get done and, and it's a great payoff. And then sometimes, like I said, I mean, they're just a pain to get done to get across the finish line and the margins are small and you're like putting in all this ton of effort and it's just been a uh, difficult, but I mean, that's just part of the business that we're in. And so for us, it doesn't matter. We're, I mean, we're in it for the long run. We're in it to build lasting relationships and to keep both uh, the buyers and sellers that we work with happy. So I got a question for you on deals that are harder to get across the finish line, i.e. trickier title, right? When you're, and I know like this, the same answer can apply of every deal is different. So that answer aside, give me some, you know, some insight on some stuff you've worked on, on that. That's a bit trickier. Do in general, do sellers appreciate the cost and the effort that goes into getting a deal done when it's super fragmented title and it's really difficult and there's additional closing costs and uh, do they understand that that can translate into a discount or is that really difficult to get them to swallow? They don't understand. In my opinion, they yeah. they don't understand. It's you get what really I'm saying, just, though, right? If it's like yeah, if you're talking sure. to someone, they're like, "We want." I'm making up a number. We want fifteen thousand in a array, and you're like, "Listen, if if your stuff was contiguous and one block, and it was in the family for four generations, and it's super clean, I may be able to streamline that because the drag on this is going to be minimal. This, you know, my client is super busy, and you know, if we can slot this one in, and it's just a nice, like you say, a nice single." Great. But if this is going to take tons of, you know, back and forth with legal interpretations and trying to piece it all together, like that's time opportunity costs and that there's real actual costs with expenses towards that. And, and you know, that that goes on deaf ears, you think? Yeah, I don't think they understand that. I think to them, they really just care about their situation. The fact that the buyer's dealing with, I mean, much larger transactions that are easier to get done, it doesn't matter to them. All they want is for you to communicate to them what they're going to receive and then just to kind of walk them through the process and them understand it. But you I mean, when it's difficult, it really doesn't matter to them. All they want is the amount that the, you, you signed on the dotted line for. 
they don't want that number to change. So we really do, I mean, we get title done before and do our best to I mean, be as accurate as possible. So that doesn't change. They just want you to do what you, I mean, follow up on, on what you say and be able to deliver that. And so anything outside of that, if you're dealing with a, a deal that's 10, 20 times the size and you're closing on the same day as a smaller deal, it doesn't matter to them. I mean, all they care about is getting paid and that things go smoothly on their deal and they'll let you worry about, you I mean, and, and that's really where, where we come in is being able to manage that. We have to manage both the buyers and the sellers in, 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 in terms of the language within the deeds, in terms of the title, in terms of convey, conveying to the seller exactly what was determined through title. Yeah, so we're put in the middle and we, we really have to keep everybody happy on both sides. And that's why we, we enjoy working with really good buyers that are easy to work with and that the entire transaction goes really smooth. And then buyers, sometimes you don't really get to choose um, who you work with because if you find a deal and they want to sell, sometimes they're difficult. Uh, a lot of times, for the most part, everybody's a pleasure to work with, but sometimes you do run into people that don't quite understand the process or just understand kind of the business and how it works. And so just communicating to them as best you can and following through on what you say usually works. And then once the deal's done and they get paid, a lot of times you have people that come back to you and say, oh, I apologize. It was being so difficult. Everything that you said was going to happen and how it happened. That's exactly how, how it went. And so we appreciate that. And so we apologize. Once money's in their bank account, really nobody, everybody's happy. Sometimes it gets pushed back like a day or so for title or for whatever reason. You I mean, it, it just it just happens. And people can get upset for, you I mean, at that. But once everybody gets paid, deeds are signed and everything's been recorded. I find that everybody, uh, that seems to solve everybody's issues. Yeah, no, the kind of the reason I asked that question, I uh, recently worked on a deal for a family on the sell side and they were managing a trust of a bunch of family members. So they had to mm. engage third party engineering, third, you know, outside yeah. counsel on the legal side to show they were being a fiduciary on behalf of the family, right? And I remember when we were going through the NDA phase to let people look at the data room, there was a couple of groups who really were breaking their balls on all this language. And the back and forth between the lawyers on the NDA alone was pretty onerous. And my client was like, yeah, they're going to have to pay a premium for us to want to accept their offer because we foresee a lot of legal costs on negotiating deed assignments and PSA and, and everything with them on that. So that was just some insight I heard from from a seller. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, everyone's different. Every deal is different, but it's just good. Attorney, for attorneys involved, right? are the best, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you get an attorney involved, they have to prove their worth. They have to, you mean. Uh, have well, we need them, their... but, but we need lawyers, right? So, it yeah, is. so man, any lawyers that's... listening, we love you, but uh, you're a necessary evil. Let's just yeah. joke about it and have a drink and everyone is happy, right? So Yeah, um, they're, they're there to protect all parties involved. And so I understand that. But sometimes you could work with attorneys that make things a little bit difficult, especially if they haven't done these types of transactions and they're working uh, specifically with a seller and they're not used to people. I mean, attorneys within the industry understand how things work and it's they're a lot easier to work with. But sometimes they're working with outside uh, attorneys that have never really kind of gone through these types of purchase and sell agreements or even the deeds. And so they're questioning stuff that a lot of times is just really standard. But attorneys within the industry, I've got I mean, really good relationships and a lot of attorneys that even bring us deals 
because we've transacted with their clients and they know that we're going to take care of them. So love attorneys, but sometimes outside attorneys from outside the industry could be difficult. Perfect. Well, Toby, been a fun conversation. Thanks for for fielding all my questions there. I kind of was curious on a few things as we were chatting and uh, you've been great to chat with. It's been a pleasure having you on. I'll give the floor to you. So what's next for Texas Mineral Company? Uh, Bread and butter has been Delaware and Midland. Do you foresee going into other basins? If so, have you already and which ones? And then when people think of Texas Mineral Company and see you guys, what do you want them to think? How would you like to do business with them? What are the types of people you want to do business with? Just profile that. We have a pretty good following in the mineral space. So we'd love to yeah, create some new business. <laughs> it would be great to create some new business relationships, right? That's the whole reason of doing sure. this type of stuff. So floor is yours. All right. So bread and butter is Delaware and Midland Basin. That's what we focused on since we started. This year has been an incredible year. We've since uh, expanded into every other major basin. We've got deals that are closing um, tomorrow in the um, DJ Basin. We've got deals in the Powder River Basin, in Bakken, Scoopstack. I mean, Haynesville is really hot. We've got a deal that we're evaluating and hope to uh, get under contract in the Haynesville. Eagleford is always interesting. Again, bread and butter, Midland and Delaware Basin. We're, we have a capital partner that we're kind of in the final stages of putting things together that we're going to specifically target Delaware Basin. So you mean any mineral companies, private mineral buyers are looking to divest in their uh, Delaware Basin acreage, uh, feel free to you know, email me or give us a call. We'd love to take a look at that. Hopefully getting super aggressive there. Um, again, this is new private capital that's coming into the Permian. So they're really dipping their toes in starting in Delaware. Uh, we're excited to get started on that. But at the same time, too, we do run across a lot of deals outside of outside of just Delaware and Midland. And that's what we're seeing right now. Um, like I said, we're closing, have a, some numbers here that uh, I put together for this podcast, 3,500 net mineral acres in the DJ Basin. In the second quarter, we're going to have closed on 240 net royalty acres in the Scoop Stack, about 620 net royalty acres in the Delaware Basin, and close to about 1,300 net royalty acres in the Midland Basin. So any groups that are looking to buy that have fresh powder and capital, we're direct to the seller. We're able to source deals. I'd love to establish relationships so we know exactly where to go on deals that aren't a fit for the current fund that we're working with. But it's an exciting time. The price of oil is I mean, $100, $110 oil. Price of gas is up. I mean, buyers are getting really competitive. I think now's a great time to sell. So we're going to take advantage of it. I mean, while the prices are up, I mean, should prices go down, we feel we're, we're always very flexible and we could adjust. We're data-driven. So being able to go out there and generate these deals organically and not just kind of the, the, the regular flyers that are sent out, We've been able to be really successful by utilizing data and figuring out who the sellers are and through good communication and just being honest and and doing good business. We've been able to kind of withstand the when the price of oil goes down and continue to get deals done at lower price oil. And then when the price of oil is up, uh, I mean, it, things are going really well. And so we've got some really sizable deals um, in these quality basins. And so we're looking to really put together both the buyer and the seller. I mean, we're an aggregator. Uh, we've built our reputation on just doing good business. And it's a real fun time to, to be in this space right now. And yeah, we're, we're pretty excited moving forward. Like I said, um, partnering up with this capital 
uh, partner in the Delaware base. I can't wait to get started on that. So I'm just really excited about the future. Good stuff. Well, Toby, thanks again for coming on. Been a lot of fun getting to know you these last few weeks. I'm looking forward to our relationship growing in years to come. Best of luck with the rest of the summer and year, and we'll look forward to seeing you in person soon. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Thank you for having me. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Authority is a specialist advisory firm focused exclusively on the minerals and royalty space for oil and gas and renewables. With our leading content platform and thought leadership, our team is continually looking to bring awareness to the mineral space in order to help investors and companies buy and sell deals and form new partnerships. If you're interested in scheduling a call to explore ways the Minerals and Royalties Authority can help your team through our offering of consulting services for business development, marketing, capital raising, and A&D, then please send me an email at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks. See you next time.